So John chapter 1, verse 35, we're going to start there. But kind of before that, here's what we find. We find John the Baptist. We know he was the forerunner for Christ. And that he came and uh, he was telling everybody, hey, yeah, I'm baptizing with water, but there's, gonna one, there's, there's coming one after me that will baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not even worthy enough to carry his sandals Right, so he's he's telling everybody about Jesus is coming, uh, and for four hundred years there's been all these prophecies about Jesus coming, the Messiah, the Christ coming, and so this is kind of where we find, and he keeps telling John has his disciples. And he's telling them, hey, Jesus is coming, and he's going to be the one that you're going to want to follow. And so uh, a few verses before this, they spot Jesus, and he says, hey, there he is. The Lamb of God, the one that comes to take away the sin of the world. That's him, the one I've been telling you about. So the next day he shows up, and this is where we're going to pick up. It says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Doesn't give their names. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Holiday Inn. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we've found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just allowing us to be in your presence this morning. God, I pray that you would just bless um, the preaching time today. Lord, not that it would be my words, but it would be your words that are heard. And God, I pray that this would just uh, change a heart, Lord. It would encourage, it would heal and restore today, God. We bless your name. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you a question. We'll get back to this here in just a second. So I want to ask you, kind of ask yourself this question. What do you think your greatest fear is? Now, I'm not talking about those irrational fears, right? Like when you're a child, when you're a kid, like, you know, uh, the dishwasher coming on in the middle of the night and it's dark. Not that kind of fear. But like the fear that, that drives you every day, the good fear, the healthy fear that drives you every day uh, to be a better person, to work harder, to do whatever it is. I want you to kind of get that in your mind for a second. And I want you to just, here in a second, I'm going to have you raise your hand because I want you to get on the same page with me. Do you know what it is? What's that one thing, that overarching healthy fear that drives you each and every day? Raise your hand if you got it. You know what it is? Have a pretty good idea? Well, I'm going to tell you what mine is today. Um, but before I do, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of folks before, and, and I think there's certain things that drive us, right? Like maybe we didn't grow up with the best parents. And maybe the fear of being a bad parent and, fall, and falling into that cycle is what drives us to be a better parent. Maybe we've been around a lot of folks that didn't have a great marriage. And so you say, man, I just don't want to have that kind of marriage. I want to have a better marriage than that. So it drives you to constantly say, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? 
Sometimes it's the fear of, I just, I don't, I, I don't want to be a financial burden to the people around me as I get older. So we, we work hard to save and scrounge and do everything that we can because we just don't want to be a burden on, on somebody else. Maybe it's um, that we have these goals that we want to accomplish. You say, hey, my, my family, nobody's ever graduated college, and so the fear of falling into that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard and I'm going to be better. My greatest fear and I try to think about this, and I talk with our students about this a lot, which I don't know if it ever sinks in because they're teenagers. But I think about I say, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? And I think to think about what kind of legacy you want to leave, you have to think about your life in reverse. Okay, so you say, I, I want to be remembered like this, so what things do I need to do to ensure that I'm remembered? Not get to the end of my life one day and say, man, I missed, I missed a lot of opportunities to do that. My greatest fear in life is the fear of being insignificant. That my life didn't matter, that it didn't count for anything, that when I'm gone, like, nobody remembers. Like nobody remembers me. I didn't have a positive impact on anybody's life. And, and, and I think that's a healthy fear. And I think if we're all honest in one shape, form, or another, we all want to be significant. Maybe it's just significance to our family, it's significance to the company that we work for, significance to our church, significance to God, but we want to be significant. We don't want to just be another face in the crowd, even though sometimes that's how we feel. That's how we feel. So how would we define significance? What are some ways that, that if we're honest, that we define being significant, Right? Here's some, some things that I jotted down uh, that made me think, how, this is how we do it. Well, Webster defines it as this, okay? It says, the quality of being worthy of attention. I think we all want to be that. We want someone's attention. We're, trying to, we're always trying to get someone's attention. The boss's attention, our spouse's attention, um, God's attention. Right? To be important. I think culture would define it as this, define significance as wealth, right? How many zeros and commas before the decimal? I got lots after the decimal, but before it, wealth, right? Accumulation of things and money and, and land and resources. How about followers? Followers, whether it be... Um, just people that, you know, if you're a Sunday school teacher, let's just be honest. Can we be honest? How many people come to your class and not go to somebody else's? And I know we don't want to say that's true, but that's how we feel sometimes. Pastors feel that way about their, about their sermons and about their churches. It's human. How many followers do you have? On social media, how many people follow you, right? How many likes do you get, right? We get this all the time with our my sweet girl. I had to wave at her. Hey, Malia. How many likes do I get on the picture of my kids? Why, well, well, why is it that when I post pictures of my kids, I only get this many likes, but so-and-so, when they post pictures of their kids, they get more likes? Why, why is that? Are my kids not as cute as theirs? Why does everybody talk about their kids, not my kids? Right, how many likes? How many shares? things that you say that are profound, things that you 
do? How many, how many people comment? How many shares? Um, social status. Where do you live? Do people know who you are? What do you drive? Career advancement. For some of us, significance is how high up the ladder have you climbed? Many of us feel like if we don't get into management or mid-level management or we're not the CEO of the company, that we're not significant. Oh, they matter more than I matter. They're more significant because they are in a higher position. Influence. Influence. Right? If I write books, how many people buy them? Right? We, 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 all these things are tracked. Right? How many records were sold? How many, how many tickets were sold? All right, the new movie came out this weekend. So uh, how many people went and saw it? Was it a box office hit? Material things. This is how we define significance. And where I can understand that, it's, it's really exhausting. It's exhausting to say we're constantly trying to define our significance in, in, in our own lives and to other people. And can I tell you this, that you never will get there if you're just trying to accumulate the next position or a little bit more wealth or a few more things or a little bit bigger house or this or that. If you don't believe me, and I'm, gonna, I'm a sports fan, okay, so I was looking at something the other day, right? You see guys and they, like, man, if I could just make it to college, that's significant. And they make it to college, right? And then they say, man, if I could just make it in the league, if I can make it in the NFL, Man, that's going to be great. I'm going to be able to provide for my family. And then you get to the NFL, and you're like, man, if I could just break some records. You know what I'm saying? I break. And, then, and then we sit there and say something. I saw something the other day between, I mean, I think we could all agree, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, two of the greatest quarterbacks of our time ever. And I saw this stat, and it was like they both had 71,340 yards Right, But here was what everybody wanted to talk about. Well, it only took Peyton Manning 17 seasons, and it took Tom Brady 20. Well, but Tom Brady's got six Super Bowls, and uh, Peyton only had two. Right? So it's, we're never satisfied. We, we never feel like we arrive at this, at this significance because if that's what we're defining our life as significant, then we often find ourselves feeling what? Insignificant. Very in, insignificant. So, Cheryl, can we go back to verse 35? We find, we find Andrew here. And I want to just point out a few things. It says he was with two of his disciples. John was, doesn't even give their names. Does that seem insignificant to you? They, they, they weren't even worth mentioning their names. And then when they did, let's go to verse uh, 37, 38, where it talks about Andrew. 37, 38... 39, maybe 40. I sound like an auctioneer. Right there. It says, Andrew. Because <laughs> I don't know who Andrew is. Let's say, he, was, he was Peter's brother, right? Why? Because everybody knows Peter. Everybody knows Peter. Don't nobody know Andrew. How do you think Andrew felt if he was reading the Gospels today? Man, they didn't even. They had to, they had to tell him who I was. Couldn't you say Andrew in my name? That wasn't good enough. It was one of the two that heard Verse 41, and when he had spent some time with Jesus, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. Verse 42 says the first thing he did, he went and found Peter and he brought him to Jesus. 
Today's message is not about Peter. Everything we just defined about significance would be about Peter. Today I want to talk about Andrew. I want to talk about that disciple that not everybody talks about. The one that just kind of gets pushed to the side sometimes because we feel like he's not as important. If we were to rank out the disciples, let's just be honest, some of you wouldn't even know Andrew was a disciple. He was one of 12. And if you did, he'd be near the bottom of the list. But let me tell you some things about Andrew that maybe you don't know. Andrew was the one who went and found the boy with the loaves and the fishes when they were getting ready to feed everybody. That was Andrew that did that. Andrew was one of the four disciples who came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives to ask about the signs of Jesus' return at the end of the age. Andrew was at the Last Supper, saw everything that happened. In fact, many times... Andrew was right there alongside Peter. A lot of the stories that we read about Peter, but Andrew's name was never mentioned because they didn't feel like it was significant enough. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Andrew don't have one. But my point today is this. Without Andrew, there there wouldn't have been a Peter. And we know Peter did great things. We, 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 we draw a lot of faith to continue on from Peter. We, we know that Peter was the first preacher. He preached the day at Pentecost when the Spirit of the Lord fell. We know he did some significant things. But the reality is the, most of us, we don't rank up there with Peter. So we say, man, that's great. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. But I'm just an average church member. I'm not a Sunday school teacher, I'm not a preacher, I can't sing, I can't do any of those things, so I'm just really not that significant. And that's not true. Can I tell you today that's not true? Now, I'll be honest with you, earlier in the week I had planned to preach a different message to you. But last night I was with some 10-year-old girls at a friend of ours, uh, we were watching the ball game, and they're talking about um, all these things, this most of you probably not going to know what I'm talking about. I didn't even know what it was. But this this thing called like a Visco girl. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Nicole's like, I know what he's talking about, right? Because she's probably one. All right, so basically what it is is these girls that sit there and they change how they laugh, how they talk, their mannerisms, how they dress, how they look, everything so they can be quote-unquote defined as being part of this elite group. At 10 years old, and these girls are bought in, and I'm just, I'm shaking my head sitting here going, is this a joke? And it's not, it's not a joke. And then I got to think, man, so many of us are like that, though. We get caught in that same, same cycle where we feel like we've got to change who we are, how we act, how we look. I've got to lose weight, I've got to gain weight, I've got to um, change the way I dress, I've got to shop here, I've got to do this, I've got to do that so that that way I'll fit in and then I'll be significant. I'll be accepted by the world. In fact, there's a TV show about it. How many of you guys have ever seen The Voice? You know what I'm talking about? Where they get up there and they do this blind audition and they sing. If you've never seen it, let me tell you what happens. So you've got these four judges and they're all these, you know, they've recorded tons and tons of 
uh, albums and all this different stuff, okay? And they've got their backs turned to them. And these people walk out, and they are giving it everything they've got singing. They don't look at them. They don't see what they look like. And they are begging them as they sing to try to get somebody to hit a button to even turn around and acknowledge them and say, yeah, I want you. And that's how we live our lives. Doing everything we can to try to get the attention of somebody, trying to get somebody to turn around and notice us, and we do that with God. We do that with God. We feel like we've got to compete and work and do all these things to get God to turn around and acknowledge us. It just isn't true. So there's three things that happen. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Okay? There's three major pitfalls when you start feeling insignificant. And they're all, they all start with C. You're welcome. The first one is confidence. When you get to a place where you feel insignificant with God or in your life, you lose confidence. Right? We talk about, especially in sports a lot, how for a kicker or a golfer or a quarterback, that they say the majority of the game is where? It's up here. It's psychological. It's they're confident. Okay, some of the greatest ones, they can make a mistake and make an error, and it doesn't bother them. One of the things that I, 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 I marvel at, I've got a six-year-old son, and anything he does, he's not, he's, he's not this child prodigy that does everything great all the time, but he can fail so many times, and he does not get upset. It does not bother him. He does not care. We can go out and play golf, and he can swing and swing and swing and swing and swing and miss the ball. And he doesn't care. He's like, just one more, Dad. One more swing. One more. And then he finally hits the ball, and he hits it really, really well. And that's the way it is in everything. It's such an asset because his confidence is not swayed by every swing of the club. But sometimes we find ourselves in that place where we say, I tried, I put myself out there, and I didn't succeed. I tried, and, and it wasn't my best, so I'm gonna, I don't have any confidence anymore. And when you don't have any confidence in what God has called you to do, you become inept. You just sit there, and you don't do anything. And that's not how God designed it. So the first thing that happens when you begin to feel insignificant is you lose all confidence. The second thing that happens is you become complacent. Complacency in anything is bad. Complacency in life. Complacency in your marriage, in your job. But that's how we get when we feel like we don't matter and we're not, nobody's, uh, they're, they're not recognizing us for the work that we're doing or, you know, whatever. We just get complacent and say, well, then fine, I'm just going to do the minimum I got to do to get by. That's how we do with God, too. We feel like, man, I've tried to do this and, and, I've tried to do that, and it's just not working out. So I'm just going to get complacent, and I'm going to sit here. So now I've lost my confidence. Now I've become complacent, and I'm good for nobody. The third thing that happens is we lose our courage. We don't have any courage to start again. Because we've lost our confidence, and then we've become complacent, we say, I'm just, 
I don't have any, I don't have any courage to try again. Maybe you had a, a bad relationship and it didn't go well, so you've sulked and become bitter and I'm just not going to try, I'm not going to try anymore. I've tried to fix my marriage and it's just not working, so I don't have any bravery to, I don't have any courage to keep trying. I've tried to follow God and it seems like that all these bad things keep happening to me. So I just don't have any courage to to keep following him. Life just isn't looking like I thought it was going to look. So we lose our courage. So I kind of got to thinking about this, um, this subject about significance and insignificance. And I think Andrew is such a great story for us because that's where most of us are. We just feel like we're just the average, insignificant. Nobody knows. Nobody is going to care whether I show up. Nobody cares if I get involved. Nobody cares if I'm walking in my calling. But see, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That he has a purpose and a plan for your life. He doesn't need everybody to be the same. Okay? Where your area to minister is, is different than mine. I can't reach the people that you can reach. Okay? I mean, I can't go to a construction site with Roger Borders and live out the gospel every day like he does. And I certainly can't drive, I certainly cannot grow an awesome ponytail like he's got. I'm super jealous, I'm not going to lie. I got like 35 years on Roger and he's got a lot more hair than I do. Some of you, you're, where, 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 your, um, where your place of ministry is, is, is on your job. Maybe yours is on social media. I'm going to say this. I didn't tell him ahead of time. But Jeff Smith posts stuff, encouraging stuff on Facebook all the time. That's his place of ministry right now. That's where God has, is, is teaching him and, and, and using him. And Jeff, I, think, I don't think you'd mind me saying this, but sometimes we kind of feel like, is what I'm doing matter? I, I know Jeff a few weeks ago said, hey, is anybody reading these posts? And what happened, Jeff? Everybody said, yeah, I'm, yes, thank you. It's encouraging. But we kind of forget that because we feel like what I'm doing is not, doesn't matter. That's not true. Sometimes we need that reassurance. Maybe you are a captain of industry, right? And you are, there's a lot of people that are reporting to you, that look to you. And you have a captive audience. And you've got a great opportunity and a responsibility to portray Christ. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that just because if you're not standing on this stage preaching to all these people today, that when you go home that you're not Jesus to those kids that you're raising. Because you may not be Peter, but you may be raising one. And I'm going to prove that to you, Connor. I'm going to prove that to you. Billy Graham, probably... I don't think anybody in the room would, would disagree 
one of, if not the most influential evangelical Christian men of our time. A hero. He's responsible for taking the gospel to places that no one else could. Maybe they didn't have maybe maybe they didn't have the courage. Maybe they became complacent because they tried a few things and it just the doors weren't opening for them. Whatever. He's a great man. He was a great man. But he wrote a, an autobiography. And in that autobiography, he, he titled it, Just As I Am. In this story, Billy Graham is Peter. So I got to thinking, I said, man, I wonder who his Andrew was. And if you read some excerpts from his autobiography called Just As I Am, he said, man, you know what? There were seven lessons I learned from my mother that were so important. And I guarantee you, it shaped his life. And I'm going to read those seven things that he said were important. And then I want you to look at his life and what you know about him, and you tell me if you think those seven things resonated with him and made him the man he was. Number one, he said, she taught me there's dignity and hard work. In his autobiography, he says that his mother, the day that she gave birth, she picked beans till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. She split wood. She worked hard. And that there was dignity and hard work. Number two, a mother's prayers are powerful. He said, she prayed for us kids. She prayed for God, for God's hand to be on my life. And I don't think I would have been accomplished what I did for the kingdom without those prayers, those believing prayers of my mother. Number three, he said, she taught me to spend time in God's word every single day. On my birthday, on my anniversary, when I was busy, when I didn't have nothing to do, when the sun was shining, when the rain was falling, every day, spend time in God's Word. Develop that relationship to lean in and get to know Him, who He really is. Not who I tell you He is, but who He is for you. Number four, he said, start reading at a young age. Number five, Marriage is worth fighting for. said, my mother taught me that. If you read about Billy Graham, one of the things, no one ever had anything negative to say about him, that, that there was never any, uh, a hint of uh, him being unfaithful or anything like that. He had a rule, right? He, was not, he, made, he, he decided he would never be alone in a room with a woman other than his wife. Those things were foundational to him being able to be significant in life and do what God called him to do. Number six, even the best parents make mistakes. Whew. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect, so don't be so hard on yourself. And number seven, last one, finish well. She taught me to finish well. Well, that says don't get complacent. Keep your confidence have courage to keep going. So I don't know who this 
message is for today. I don't know. I don't know what God has for your life. I don't know if God has for you, and it's maybe what we would consider a B-roll player, right? A supporting cast player like an Andrew. And we look at that and we say it's not as important, and we rank them. God does not rank you. Let me say that again. God does not rank you. He doesn't love you any more than he loves me. He's not any, more, he's not any prouder of Pastor Irwin than he is of anybody else. He wants you to be the best you that he can be. And he's written it out. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life. But for you to do that and achieve significance you got to understand what that really means. So you've got to become okay with maybe God has placed you in the same job for 40 years to be stable and a rock. And that countless people have crossed your path and you've showed them Jesus. And they may go on to do other things that you'll never know about. But God is using you and he's got you in that place and he's created you and designed you and given you all the functionalities to do that, to be in that place. So stop wishing for something else. Stop wishing that God give you a different role. God gave you your role. And it's important. It's critically important. Would you stand with me today? In closing today, if you don't hear anything else, I think God wants you to hear, you matter. You're significant. You're enough. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you work 60 or 70 hours a week, and you feel like all I do is work and I'm not a good enough mom. We, we all, we're all there. We're all in that same boat. If we're chasing that, that idea of significance based on what the world says, it's, it's, it's exhausting. God says you're significant. And he wants you to thrive in the place that he's put you. Be the best you that God wants you to be right where you are today in the here and the now. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And just in closing today, I just want to know, is there anybody in the room that would just slip up your hand and you say, hey, you know what? This message was for me today. And I want you to pray for me and say, hey, I've kind of felt down and out. I felt like maybe I didn't matter, like my role wasn't important enough, and I have fallen into that. And I just want you to pray that God helps me to feel significant, to get my confidence back, to get to shake myself out of this complacent state that I'm in and to have the courage to pursue God and to try again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Church, will you help me just pray just right where you are for all those that need a touch from God. Lord, we love you today. God, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we know that you have all things in your control. And Lord, sometimes we just need to be reminded, 
Lord, that you are in control and that we are significant. So, Lord, I pray today that you would just wrap your loving arms around each and every person under the sound of my voice today to let them know that they matter. God, to re-energize them, to continue on in what you've called them to do, that they're enough. And God, I pray that we would walk out of these doors today knowing that you still have a plan for us. You haven't forgotten about us. And that, God, our role is important. And that we would thank you for it each and every day. Now, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today, God, that you would give us safe passage. God, that you would give us a great week. That you would give us opportunities, Lord, to be your hands and your feet to show kindness and grace and salvation to those who don't know you. In our own way, whether it's in a classroom, on the job site, at home, let us be Jesus for those around us. Lord, we love you. Bring us back safely next week. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen.